it has always fascinated me that we can fill the sanctuary for a Yisker memorial service, but Simchat Torah, Sukkot, or Purim, holidays that are centered on joy, not oi, draw sparse numbers. And then I wonder also, why do we travel miles and miles and time zones and time zones for funerals at a moment's notice, but we will skip simchas that we've known about for months and months in advance? So what's more important, to honor the dead or to celebrate life, to celebrate the living? One could make a reasoned argument for either position. This contrast is highlighted this weekend, as it is really every year, with Simchat Torah and Shemini Atzeret, the Yisker service at the end of the eighth day or seventh day of Sukkot. Sunday night, this sanctuary will be filled with children. They'll be carrying flags, they'll be marching around, they'll be dancing with joy as we parade the Torahs through our sanctuary, because that's what children do so well free from the worries and the stresses of adult life and adulthood. If you play some music and give some candy, it's an immediate dance party. Come Monday, and cue the Jimmy Buffett song, come Monday, adults, thank you, somebody got that reference. Adults will fill these very same seats. They will take time off from work to recite memorial prayers for loved ones, to say kaddish. We have separated the two events largely because to combine them, as our tradition suggests and it actually commands us to do, seems a little bit like ham and cheese on a bagel. It, it just doesn't feel right. But Western sensibilities being what they are, we are doing it wrong. In Israel, Shemini Atzeret and Simchat Torah are celebrated together which is actually the reform movement's model as well, because we follow the Israeli practice of seven days of a Chag. Though we add a pediatric element that further relegates Simchat Torah to the Tat Shabbat crowd. In any event, it makes for, I think, an interesting juxtaposition of moods, as the Hakafot and the celebration of the calling of Chatan Torah, the last Aliyah of the Book of Deuteronomy, and Chatan Bereshit, Chatan, by the way, means bridegroom, the first aliyah of the book of Genesis, which are read in the same voice, in the same breath, so that there is no lack, there is no moment of sadness, that we don't at all despair that Torah has ended, we don't even break the note. The chazan, the cantor, will continue the note at the end of Deuteronomy, right into the beginning of Bereshit, so there's not a moment without joy. As those give way, to the mournful tones of Yisker. The calling of the bridegrooms of the Torah is actually an echo of a tradition that takes place on the Shabbat most immediately following a Jewish wedding, when the groom is supposed to be called for an aliyah and the couple is celebrated in the synagogue. And the memorial prayers that recited, well, they remind us of the prayers for the dead. They call to mind funeral services of loved ones. And both of these are supposed to exist in the same service, indeed almost in the same moment. It is very odd. On this one day, to symbolically speaking, attend a funeral and a wedding, all wrapped into one service. The Israeli writer Aryeh Aviv 
describes this scene in one Israeli synagogue as follows. The merriment stops, overpowered by a change in the climate. Nevertheless, here and there are still signs, are seen signs of rebellion against the acceptance of the yoke of the kingdom of tears. The people obligated to recite Yis Kor, they gather in the vicinity of the Bima, and in the western part of the synagogue, others are assembled, making toasts and l'chaim and drinking. Life and death are face to face. There is in that synagogue, in that moment, a rivalry between tears and mirth. At one moment, mourning seems dominant, and another, gladness overwhelms. And so it is. Life and death meet, joy and sorrow are coupled, tears and glee kiss one another on the face. The order of life and the shadows of the dead are mingled. The recalling of the souls of the departed and the rejoicing of the Torah are as one. Is this possible? Indeed it is. Indeed it's necessary. It's commanded. Truth be told, Judaism seldom asks us to do the easy thing. Rather, I think what makes our tradition a way of living that is so endearing to so many of us is that it challenges us to go beyond our comfort zone, to resist our natural inclinations and to aspire to greater things. And as we know, greater things are often harder, harder things. So the mixing of Simchat Torah and Yisker, of joy and oy, together on that same day is quite intentional. It is to place before us the reality of life, the sweet and the sour, and to compel us to live with both simultaneously. Juxtaposing sorrow and joy has deep roots in Judaism. Every year, the festival of Purim reminds us of this, how according to the biblical book of Esther, the Jews of ancient Persia were saved from annihilation, and the day before we have our carnival-like celebrations, we fast. We fast to remember Esther's fast. We're bidden to recall the perennial threat of destruction at the prelude to giving thanks for redemption. Dal Marmer, the rabbi emeritus of the Holy Blossom Temple in Toronto, teaches that among the many definitions of what it means to be a Jew, perhaps the most telling suggests that a Jew is a person who weeps with one eye while laughing with the other. What may be physiologically impossible, has become historically and psychologically factual. Jews all over the world, especially those who witnessed the horrors of the Shoah and those who fought in the wars for the independence and survival of the state of Israel, testify to this in their daily lives. This may also be part of the Jewish message to the world, that though tragedy is, alas, inevitable and must never be denied, Salvation and triumph, they are also at hand. To live, to fully live, individually and collectively, is to acknowledge and to celebrate both. This emotional quandary is the direct result, it's the direct expression of what Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik terms our dialectic existence. An existence defined by conflicting emotions. The Rav, as Soloveitchik is called and known, explains that in order to effectively respond to the complexity of our existence, an existence that abounds in dichotomies, we live in contradictions. We must apply the complete table of our emotions, engaging 
the totality of our emotional life. He further explains that we must realize that our emotions make up a continuum, such that every emotion is born out of a previous emotional experience and points us towards a new experience into which it will gradually pass. He explains that an emotional experience is made up of more than just a single primal emotion, joy or sadness, happy or sad. That an, expression, that an experience actually obtains a depth of meaning when it it's contrasts the various and even oftentimes antithetical emotions. We laugh at funerals as we remember our loved one. We are greeted with a tinge of joy at a shiva home when we encounter a friend that we met because of the deceased, through the deceased. We have a moment of sorrow and melancholy as we sit around our Seder tables, reveling in our family being together, but also noticing the empty chair, the voice that's not there, the Bubby or the Zadie who would have loved that moment of passing Torah at a bar bat mitzvah, who would have lived for that moment but sadly could not live long enough. The Rav writes that the spectrum of emotions manifests in an all-embracing experience, In each emotional experience, there is the center-directed glance, that emotion itself, I have joy, I have sorrow, but also a peripheral look, I might have sorrow, I aspire towards joy. While emphasis is placed upon that central theme, I am happy, I am sad, of one's experience, the joy or the sorrow, the attendant peripheral, the thing that it isn't, but is somewhere on the continuum, is nevertheless relevant and meaningful. In simpler terms, what the Rav is teaching is that what Judaism has been teaching through this combination of Simchat Torah and Yisker, that not only can you not have joy without sorrow in life, but that you can't truly appreciate joy without sorrow, that you can't truly understand sorrow without joy. One needs the other. It is their relation to each other that makes them so poignant and powerful. Joy without context, without an appreciation that there can be sorrow in a moment, well, that's hilarity. And hilarity is meaninglessness. It's just uncontrolled laughter that doesn't even remember why you're laughing. And similarly, sorrow, without appreciation for the joy that waits on the other side, is, as we know, a dark and deep depression that is almost impossible to climb out of on your own. Judaism says life is lived with both. Not in the balancing of both. This is not a simple sermon that says life is lived in the balance. Rather, life is lived holding both, even if in the moment, one weighs more than the other. There's a Zen Buddhist saying, or teaching, I should say, that the hardest thing to do in life is to carry two things of equal value and equal import in your hands at the same time. It comes from the same root of our tradition of Simchat Torah and Yisker. Both are precious, life and death, joy and sorrow, both teach us the intrinsic value of life and that each moment is precious. And we must hold both of them, even if it is hard. In fact, because it is hard, we must hold both of them. The psalmist declares, those who sow in tears 
will reap in joy. It's a fitting verse for a Simchat Torah and a Shmini Atzeret that take place during Sukkot, which is itself a harvest holiday. In life, you never get one without the other. There is no guarantee anyone can give you that you will have a life only of joy, and God forbid someone should say to you, you will have a life only of sorrow. But through both joy and sorrow, life, like a field, it bears fruit. Those who sow in tears will reap in joy, will bring forth measles. Amen. song. May it be God's will. Amen. We turn to page 586. We rise for Elena. <laughs> 